good y'all hope everybody is well uh starting a little bit later than my usual time tonight i do apologize for that uh but i am going to give some people some time to come through i see uh some supporters coming through what's good what's up donnie brother malika always good to see you jay bones i'm listening what's happening Cozy, what's going on? Yeah. Y'all know what it is. Welcome to the uh, Onyx Report, where we as black male justice advocates uplift black men and boys using critical analysis. Um, Jay Cleveland, what's the word? Brother Ishmael, what's going on? Yeah. Well, before I get started, as usual, let me uh, thank and support uh, my supporters um, who have kept the show uh, going for quite a while now. Um, so let me appreciate that. Uh, brother J bones. Thanks for the support. And, um, here we go. So much appreciation to my supporters. Y'all know what it is. Um, you know, at this point, I don't want to go through all of my traditional rigmarole. Like, share, subscribe, join, and donate. Support the channel if you will. Uh, you can click the join and subscribe buttons right here on YouTube. And you can look through the battery of options there, especially for becoming a member. You can also go to Patreon, support the channel there, or you can support the Institute for Black Male Studies. So um, please do so, because um, we are about to actually, I start teaching next week. So things are about to get uh, pretty busy for me again, um, but uh, we're going to make it happen. So um, appreciate y'all support. I wasn't going to go tonight because I'm, I was feeling a little queasy earlier, but I said, you know what, let me, uh, you know, I had a moment of feeling a little better. We're going to find out if that moment was a moment or something more. Shout out to Cozy Corner for the support. Also, uh, uh, thank you, uh, uh, Mark, for that. Salutations to you as well. Uh, come on through. What's up, Joe? And Brother Tim, always good to see you as usual. Um, so many of these regular faces or regular names, I should say. Uh, hopefully, you guys will consider becoming members of the channel. Anyway, uh, let me get a few things straight here. So yeah, like I said, I almost didn't go, but uh, I was like, you know what? I gotta, I gotta get this one in. This might be the last live before I start teaching, and it is what it is. So y'all know, saw the title: How um, Black Feminist Platforming Attempts to Silence Black Masculinist Critique. 
but we're going to go there. Um, some recent things that have taken place and need to be commented on, I suppose. I'm not always the, the quickest person on current events, especially as it relates to popular media, but you know, there are some things you got to get in on and, and make a comment on because it's important, right? And we look for alternative opinions to give us some clarity on things. So I figured I'd put my two cents in as well. What's up, Brother Mike? What's up, Hybrid Ninja? Hope you guys are well. Uh, 74 people in so far. Again, hit the like button as you come in and support the channel if you will. All right. So let's get a couple of things out there on the rip. All right, I'm going to have to take this Clubhouse app off my phone. It's giving me alerts every two seconds whenever somebody's starting a panel. And I think I've been on there maybe once. Um, anyway. So, as you can see, special shout-outs. Uh, today we have two. And uh, I think they are both extremely, um, you know, there's a lot of potential for both. Um, much appreciated, Brother Rashid. Thanks for the support. Um, you guys can see on the screen, you can you can, uh, you can can support with Super Chat. You can send to Patreon, Cash App, PayPal, or Venmo. So please make sure you support the channel. So first one up is a very interesting piece that you can find on uh, InsideHigherEd.com. Uh, Get this thing out of the way here. And the title of it is A Decades-Long National Crisis and a New Position. Compton College created a new position focused on the academic needs of Black and Latino men. Campus leaders believe they're at the forefront of a new and long overdue trend. It's important. I don't, it, you know, I don't know if it's going to be a trend or not. And some respects, I like trend to the extent that it might be might mean it's going to happen more. I don't like trend in terms of um, the brevity of how fast things seem to fall out of favor. But hopefully, uh, this will pick up across different universities uh, across the country, uh, hell, across the world for that matter. Anyway, it reads Antonio Banks. Uh, well, no, I'm going to skip through. Hold on, let me get to the meat of it. Um, let's see. I usually read a lot more to this, but I want to get to uh, get to it. All right. So higher ed experts say senior level positions such as banks specifically dedicated to the needs of black men are rare, despite longstanding and staggering disparities in academic and career outcomes for black male college students. Compton College president and CEO Keith Curry believes uh, roles focused on black men will become a trend at colleges and universities and that community colleges like this that enroll high numbers of black students will be at the forefront. Um, so this is a piece about Antonio Banks, who's been recently hired in a position. Um, he's 34 years old. He's going to be the first director uh, of Black and Males of Color Success at Compton. His role, which began in late November, was created explicitly to ensure Black men stay enrolled, succeed academically, and graduate. Now, I wanted to do something very similar um, a number of years ago, there's a number of positions I applied for where I was interested in doing that. I wanted to set up a sort of powerhouse um, university as far as black males are concerned. And I found a great deal of resistance to this, um, both uh, overtly and, you know, covertly. Uh, but I am glad to see that, it, that you know, individual campuses, uh, very particular brothers are starting to push ground. Uh, sounds for life. Appreciate that support. Right. So, um, but hold on, let me go on here. 
Okay, so they're talking about President Keith Curry or CEO, uh, college president, Compton College president and CEO. Interesting. CEO hmm. uh, goes on to comment that, uh, or they say his passion uh, for these issues also started early. Uh, he was so disturbed by the lack of diversity at the University of California, Santa Cruz. <laughs> yeah, he would be there. From which he earned a bachelor's degree in American studies that in his sophomore year, he founded Destination Higher Education and Networking Program for Black prospective students to meet current students. Um, he says, now I'm in a position where I can actually make some changes to help support Black students, and I'm holding myself accountable for that. Now, notice notice how he said Black students. That's not accidental. That's not accidental. He understands that uh, for the most part, he will likely be attacked for creating this program. I created a program at Fresno State uh, for Black males, and I went to a conference and I presented on how the program was doing in its first year. The very first question I got from Black uh, academics and Black graduate students, um, you know, for this program that was targeted at Black males is, what about the girls? Why didn't you set anything up for the girls? I got that question three times in a row. Gave the same answer. The girls already had a program. And they'd had one for over a decade. Their numbers were solid. Motown, appreciate that support. Their numbers were solid. You know, now I will say the numbers of black students in general have, has dropped, but uh, proportionally speaking, black males numbers were always significantly lower. And so in that respect, um, this president understands that uh, he's going to be attacked simply for targeting black males. He didn't say anything derogatory about any demographic. He just targeted a much a group that's much in need. Um, but anyway, it reads, Compton College is located south of downtown L.A., city uh, where more than 20 percent of the residents have incomes that fall below the poverty line, according to the latest U.S. Census Bureau data. Eric, appreciate that support. Thank you. Um, Compton College uh, survey report conducted by the Hope Center for College Community um, and Justice in 2019 found that about 63% of Compton students experienced housing insecurity that year and 23% had been homeless. In fall 2021, 46% of the student body received Pell Grants, federal financial aid for low-income students. Barriers for education for Black men began long before they stepped foot on college campuses. Black male students are disciplined in K-12 schools at higher rates than their white male peers. According to a wide range of research, many come to college uh, as low-income and first-generation students and lack um, I, I just want to call you Racer X. I appreciate that support. Uh, anyway, um, so it says uh, many come to college as low um as low-income first-generation students um, and lack navigational capital about how to successfully get through the institution. This is true. While balancing their academic work with demanding jobs, financial stressors, and family responsibilities, Banks said. You can add to that that they don't often develop the same kind of ties, a sense of belonging to the campus in many respects because so much of their lives are being pulled at from so many different directions. It's difficult to facilitate that. You got to make students feel welcome, especially they don't have a background or family background in higher education alongside, um, you know, a legacy of impoverishment. So all these things kind of collide to make it difficult for black students, black male students in particular. 
Um, if they aren't fortunate enough to identify someone, whether that be faculty or staff or a community member or a peer or somebody who can uh, very early on help walk them through that process, they can be discouraged. Banks graduated from Cal State in 2010 with a degree in liberal arts. He went on to get a master's degree in higher education and a doctorate in educational leadership from California State University Fullerton, where he wrote his dissertation, Traversing the Higher Education Pipeline for African-American Male Students. He said getting involved with the student government organization, serving as a resident assistant, and working in student affairs or in the student affairs office contributed to his perseverance. Um, Derek Perkins, director of the Center for Male Engagement at the Community College of Philadelphia, founded in 2009 uh, to serve black men, noted that men in general aren't socially and culturally conditioned to ask for help, which poses an added challenge as they try to make their way through college. He finds black men are also more likely to feel that teachers and professors view them as unintelligent, a threat or disengaged, which impedes their learning. Right. So this is definitely a piece. You know, I'll actually put the link in uh, in the chat. Very interesting piece. Gives me a lot of hope. For the MLR, always good to see you, man. Hope all is well with you. Um, also, get this. so you can check that link out and uh, share that if you will. Yeah, much appreciated, MLR. Uh, Brother Ian, good to see you in here. Always appreciate the support. Uh, Lee's Ways, what's going on? Um, and a number of new store. Good to see you, man. Hope all is well. Um, <laughs> he says, Compton College are full of puppets. And you want to hit me to this one. Let me know if there's some substance to it. I like what I'm reading here, but I don't know anything about the program. I haven't set foot on Compton College since the early 90s, so not really familiar with where it's at. But this is an interesting article nonetheless. Anyway, so check that out. Again, that is insidehighered.com. And... Um, it is entitled A Decades-Long National Crisis and a New Position. Uh, targeting Black males seems to be the focus. And so the second one that I wanted to give a special shout out to is one at Morehouse College. They've launched their Black Men's Research Institute. Um, we shall see uh, what the potential is for this. Um, and I had the screen up. I think I messed around and hit something else. Here we go. All right. So it says uh, Morehouse College today launched the Black Men's Research Institute, pioneering initiative to study the economic, social, cultural, and personal outcomes of issues affecting Black men, particularly where disparities exist in the U.S. and internationally. Rooted in the scholarship of the humanities, humanistic social sciences, and the creative arts, the Institute is unique in its expansive focus on diverse Black masculinities, and the positioning of black men in society as it relates to the intersectionality of race, class, religion, gender, sexuality, identity, politics, and policy, uh, history, art, and other factors. By amplifying collaborative uh, or through thought leadership, the Institute strives to counter conflicting narratives, distrust, and ambiguity with a clear authoritative voice on the experiences of black men. The, B the BMRI will also strengthen the intellectual dis uh, discovery, discourse, and scholarship at Morehouse in areas related to LGBTQ history, culture, 
and social challenges, as well as sexism, patriarchy, and misogyny. As a college dedicated to advancing knowledge of Black men's lives, Morehouse is thankful for the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation's investment that enables us to establish the BMRI. Um, yeah, says um, Kendrick Brown, PhD, Provost and Senior Vice President of Academic Affairs at Morehouse. So eh, we'll see how this turns out. I mean, I don't have a problem with a wide variety of, of issues that they're going to engage as far as Black men, but... Um, you know, to, to actually state that they're going to deal with or at least um, uh, strengthen the, the intellectual discovery discourse and scholarship at Morehouse as it relates to patriarchy, misogyny, and sexism, it's kind of suspect. Not because those areas can't be studied or shouldn't be studied, but more so along the lines of whether or not they are suggesting that these are issues that Black men are more particularly uh, you know, suspect for you know, in terms of behavior. You know, if they're at all supporting that argument by creating an institute to study it, um, that might be problematic because that is a, a trope that is very popular, but is not necessarily the case. Shout out to Newstool and um, um, Tara Shea McCray for the Cash App. Appreciate that support. Right. So it's one of the things that we got to really look at and see what they're going to do with it. It all comes down to how it's implemented, not necessarily the verbiage uh, that they use. Now, that is significant. We got to see where they are going with this. Right. Right. So that's potential. But if it ends up uh, reinvoking old, inaccurate tropes about black men, then I'm going to have an issue with it. But those of you who are familiar with Morehouse, appreciate that support, Barry. Thank you. Uh, those of you familiar with Morehouse or uh, this particular program, if you have some additional information, let me know. Um, Appreciate it. Yeah, Barry, I almost didn't go tonight. Um, like I said, so we'll see how I feel as far as how long I go. But uh wanted to jump in on something. So I figured we might as well uh, jump into it. So, I, you know, I don't really, you know, deal with a lot of feminist articles, um, you know, blogs. I, I really don't do that anymore as much um that was a number of years ago i'm in a very different place oh uh, t fitness you said ta ta rache did i mispronounce i probably i apologize if i mispronounced that but uh um uh, anyway thanks for the support but yeah so there's you know i don't really go after feminist articles blogs or tweets anymore because they're like flies at this point particularly flies on shit and it's usually what they're spreading around in many respects, especially, especially as it relates to how black men are perceived. And we get that. There's been a recent piece that I'm not going to put a link up or even give the full title of. I don't want to give it any more clicks. But there's been a recent piece, uh, Vanity Fair, that uh, was written supposedly about Dave Chappelle. But in many ways, it became yet another indictment of black men. There's been a lot of comment, uh, commentary about it, a lot of critique, and rightly so. And I was glad to see it. Uh, a lot of my colleagues uh, pulled together, uh, did panels, uh, and really broke down quite a bit. Shout out to, to, to Torn um, uh, Walker on Twitter, who uh, did, some, did a beautiful panel uh, the other day with Dr. Tommy Curry on Black Male Studies. And uh, there were some critiques brought to bear 
on this type of scholarship. You might call it Twitter scholarship, um, you know, and rightly framed it by not only explaining the um, purpose of blacks of, of black male studies, but also uh, how to situate these kinds of articles. Right. This is, as I said, this is a piece that is talking about Dave Chappelle and, um, you know, what the author refers to as the big lie. And basically what she's talking about is she's indicting black men through celebrities. I mean, not only does she mention Dave Chappelle as far as his critiques on LGBT um, folk, particularly black LGBT, but also, you know, she, she runs the gamut on the names you would expect to hear, R. Kelly, Bill Cosby, right? And this is, this is her, her low-key kind of jab or spear um, being thrown at black men through very particular celebrities, very particular uh, figures who are known in the popular consciousness for having done something egregious, most particularly to women, right? Now, I really didn't want to pay this as much attention as... as Others did. I figured it'd be knocked out the park, and it was in terms of how it should be viewed, how it should be critiqued, so on and so forth. I'll probably pull up, you know, a couple of a few quotes here and there and just kind of talk about a few of them. But I'll tell you what I'm really more interested in after we kind of delve through some of that. Right. Um, so let me see. Let me pull it up. All right. Okay, so this is a person named Jamila. Um, I can say I'm not a fan. I've heard her name before. Um, you know, and she is a black feminist who routinely comments on black men. And so, um, you know, throughout the article, she lays out a number of things. And it sounds on the surface level like, um, you know, it's been researched to some extent or whatnot. What you really got to do when you read it is to pull back and ask yourself, have you seen any statistics? Have you seen any references to any formal studies? Um, basically, it's a lot of shaming, um, a lot of shade being thrown toward, uh, thrown toward black men. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's a bit problematic. But anyway, let me just uh, choose some choice segments to kind of go through. Um Which one do I want to jump at first? Yeah, so here's one of hers, one of her statements here. She says, but the black man is too often coded language for cishet black man and the degree to which any and all other groups of black people are suffering. That is up for debate. This could just be chalked up to sexism and various other phobias, but I think it's deeper than that. Many of us hold the biggest space for our men and sometimes our boys, but rarely at the expense of the men and our collective hearts because we feel like they need it more than anyone else. So she pays lip, lip service to black men at key points. And this is something that uh, uh, Torin and Dr. Tommy Curry dealt with in their stream. If you haven't seen it, go to Torin uh, Walker's Twitter. Um, let me make sure that I am pointing you to the right place. <laughs> yeah. Go to Torn Walker's Twitter, and you can see it. Um, uh, he posted the full discussion a little while ago. It's called The Mix, hashtag The Mix, Black Male Studies Panel with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. I popped my head in there for a second. 
um, as well as Hood Scholar. Shout out to Hood Scholar. He's been on the show as well. Uh, he was on the panel and they had a very good discussion about uh, black male studies, the need for it, what its purpose is, what its goal is. Um, and it's a movement that I, and a, and a push uh, that I participate in, participate in greatly. Um, and, you know, Torrin and Dr. Co- uh, Dr. Curry uh, pointed out that figures like her are, um, are the handpicked, right? Um, they're the handpicked to, to speak for Black America. Uh, and condemning Black men is, uh, you know, is usually rewarded in a particular way, especially in the academy. It uh, comes along with um, promotion. You know, uh, you can get access to higher level um, platforms that aren't necessarily accessible to most. I mean, this is a piece in Vanity Fair after all. And if I'm not incorrect, it may be her first there. So it's interesting to see that this kind of hit piece always gets uh, major platforming. And that's why I titled today's show the way I did, because the kind of platform being given to black feminism and such black feminist critiques that are highly misandrous um, is done pretty easily, pretty smoothly, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty quickly and without a lot of pushback. Right. So this this brief statement that I read over a second ago where she talks about um, this idea that cishet, right, cis um, heterosexual black men. Right. Are, are they absor- basically this is an old argument. They absorb all the attention in the community. And so other groups don't get the attention that they deserve and that this is sexism and other phobias, right? Homophobia, transphobia, so on and so forth. Uh, but she argues that it's deeper than that. And it has to do with the ways in which other groups prioritize black men. And basically black men don't appreciate it. And if anything, turn around, turn around and exploit it. She didn't provide any data for any of that. And this is what passes you know, for acceptable scholarship. It's justified in, in people's minds that this is somehow the case. Even though, if you actually do look at the data as far as the progressiveness of black men, black men generally tend to rate fairly high, consistently. Especially as it relates to feminism. But black men, you know, tend to rate fairly high. And yet, these are the common tropes that are routinely pulled out to castigate black men. To make us out to be what is effectively uh, the perception that many white w- women held toward white men, especially going back to the 70s. And somehow this has become the absorbed dialogue appropriated and applied between black men and women in a way that's not accurate, historically the case. But one of the ways you do this, one of the ways you can do this is to take individual situations and make the argument that they're somehow reflective of a demographic. So for her, when she makes these points, eventually she shifts the discussion to very key celebrity black men, most of, most notably Dave Chappelle. And this is somehow supposed to stand in as evidence. And when it's positioned on a high level platform with a lot of eyes on it and given no context, it's not related to any, it's not posted against any of the studies and it ignores the scholars that might have something to say to push back against it all you have. And a lot of people will go with this, especially if they see it mirrored in a number of different contexts. In other words, if you see it mirrored in popular culture, television, film, see it mirrored in your college classes regarding gender, 
how many people taking gender studies courses have actually ever taken a course on men and masculinity taught by what I would call a masculinist or at the very least, or, uh, you know, somebody in black male studies, not many comparatively speaking, most of these classes are taught by feminists from a very particularly slanted lens, much in relation to her approach to this subject. Um, she even goes on, goes so far to say at a different point, uh, black men's oppression does not absolve the men themselves of their of the power of patriarchy, and it does not prevent them from exerting that power over women and LGBTQ plus people, particularly black ones. Does she provide any evidence as to what measure of patriarchy that your average rank and file black man has access to? How's that measured? See, that's the thing. You don't have to measure it when you're in these circles. You can just say it, and it's taken as gospel. No citations, no references, just the accusation that black men essentially use their oppression to absolve themselves of the, their oppression of other demographics in the community. This is bullshit. Absolutely ridiculous. And yet in far too many circles uh, held up as truth. There will be people who will use this article as a homework assignment in a class and support everything in it without at, at any point referencing any studies to verify any of these arguments. Because it goes along. <laughs> Dr. CD2, appreciate that support. It goes along with very old ideas, ideas that have gone back generations about black men. And they've taken different form. Right? But at the end of the day, they've been fixated on dehumanizing black men for the sake of uplifting others. And by uplifting, I mean advancing politically and socially at the expense of black men. And that's essentially what you have happening in this article. It's an attempt, and it's an old one. It's the methods are really fairly old, but it's an attempt that we see going back to the 1970s of framing black women in alignment with the narratives that white women have used. White women have used a very particular uh, a narrative of oppression to first associate themselves with uh, the idea of oppression, to frame themselves to be not only victims, but more particularly, to be minorities. This is how they dis distance themselves from white men to both create a separate category for themselves while remaining white. Expansion wiring, appreciate that, that cash app support, right? This is how they maintain their, their, their connection to whiteness while at the same time distancing themselves so they can benefit from minority status. And by the time you start to have conversations about affirmative action, they're the primary beneficiaries. Roosevelt, appreciate that support, right? And so in that respect, what we're seeing is black feminists who are continuing to use the same types of narratives to frame themselves, to project themselves, to be in the same exact posture white women are. And the extent to which they can successfully cast the narrative that they are oppressed by their men, they can access the resources available to them 
that white feminists have, have, have framed in society. And that's what we're seeing in articles like this. Articles where you can take three or four celebrities and cast a brush over the entirety of black men. If you're going to talk about black men who are rapists, black men who are assaulting uh, their, 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 their significant others, if you're going to take those, you, you don't even have to limit it to individual celebrities. If you took the group of men who are doing this, it would still be a fraction of 1%. And somehow black men, that, 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 that's sufficient. That's sufficient for many people that that argument be made that all black men are a reflection of a fraction of 1% of black men. It's an acceptable argument. And that's what we're seeing here. Now, lately, I've been talking about what I call male relationship emotional labor number of my last shows have been dealing with different dimensions of it because I think the work that black men do to emotionally support not just their intimate partners, not just their families, but people in their community, not only just not only, you know, children, not only women, not only in intimate relationships, but the community itself, the kind of emotional labor black men endure goes on, you know, goes disregarded. And I think in this respect, kind of what you see in an article like this, there's a lot of shaming language. There's a lot of, um, you know, dismissal. There's a lot of um, sidestepping the the realities, you know, whether you're talking about rape, whether you're talking about abuse, um, no referencing the actual data that shows us that in regard to abuse, the black community is mainly bidirectional. Um, you know, Dr. Curry said he's got a study coming out that's going to uh, further highlight this on a whole nother level. I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully I can get him on to talk about it when he's done with it. But he's been talking about this for several years uh, before the man not came out, if I'm not mistaken, you know, about the ways that in terms of abuse, the community has been bidirectional. And really, if you're going to talk about um, sexual uh, vulnerability, sexual victimization, um, the statistical difference between men and women is so minute. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. I posted the numbers on the show. I didn't I didn't even deal with the percentages. I posted the raw numbers before. And they're they're, you know, especially out of a population of 43 million, you're talking less than 200 according to the data. At least up to a year or two ago. We got to see what's going on as to whether or not they finally have more states reporting, but for the most part, you're still talking about a couple hundred people a year who are killed by their intimate partner. Um, and, and yet this becomes how black men are framed and articles like these continue to play on those tropes, um, not only for the sake of, you know, dehumanizing black men in regard to uh, using misandry to do it, but also as a way of aligning with white feminist policy. Or I should say, you know, white feminist, uh, kind of a white feminist philosophy right, in order to access policy. And it continues to work continues to work. One of the things we've been seeing in the last year is the philanthropic support of black women and girls, um, private companies, corporations, even government creating new policies, everything from uh, free, you know, free grant money or free money every month or living expenses all the way to um, um, STEM training. Private companies, Goldman Sachs, Google, Visa, MasterCard, and a number of others. 
And I've been reporting on this on a regular basis because they're only earmarked for black women. And, you know, you know, it, it's it's funny. In the last few years, I've been pointing this out. I don't really think people listen. I think what people do is they label and they dismiss. When this article came out, I saw people coming out of the woodworks to talk about it. And I was glad to see it. But one of the things that bothered me, this is why I'm saying tonight is really not just about this article. It's really about a larger framing that I'm trying to do. They made it about her. And they made it about her misandry. They made it about her sexism, right? Toward black men. And that's appropriate. But the problem with that is if you make it about her, you overlook the culture that has been produced in the last five or so decades. When you have policy that prioritizes one demographic in a relatively poor community over another, it has an effect. It has an effect on worldview, has an effect on relationships, it has an effect on behavior, it has an effect. This is not, I'm not pathologizing black women. I'm saying that there is an effect that comes about from long-term access to resources, whether we're talking family court, whether we're talking welfare, whether we're talking college access, whether we're talking even low-level white-collar jobs. If you're talking about a population of black men who prior to the pandemic were 40 and 50% unemployed over 35, 40 major cities in the country. It doesn't take much to promote the idea that a certain demographic is better than their men. It really doesn't take much. In a relatively poor community, it doesn't. And over time, you'll start to see a shift in the dynamic of the community, the social dynamic, how people's relationships are established and continue to function, it begins to take effect. What I'm arguing is that this Jamila figure who wrote this piece, I don't deal with her as an individual. I deal her with a deal. I don't deal with her, excuse me, as an individual. I deal with her as a symptom of a social practice, a social practice that has prioritized black women in a very particular way and has recast black men in another to black men and boys detriment. So when she makes these statements about how lauded black men are, she's being a disingenuous, but more than that, the critique to her and this piece sidesteps the breadth of what we're really dealing with. It's not just a couple of individual bad actors who are in position to write these negative articles or who are professors at universities. It's not just that, it's wider than that. It's an embracing and internalizing of very particular misandrous ideas that have been inculcated into the very worldview of generations of men and women. Boys and men are being raised to see themselves as less than, in my assessment. Girls and women are ra being raised to prioritize themselves and see men as tools, a means to an end. They're to serve, they're to provide, 
really not human. Now, that isn't to say that there aren't women that see through that, but it is to say if that is the prevailing or if, it, if, if I, even, I won't even use the term prevailing, if that is the low boiling standard in the background. As an effect, let me put it in another way. You grow up in a family where you've seen your grandmother hold down the household. Even if she's living in a home that her husband bought with 40 years of labor and died, it's her home. She's the head of the household. She's the matriarch of the family. Her daughter runs her own household. Her granddaughter runs her own household. Cousins, aunties run their own households. And you can see whole families of women with no man in sight. Men come in and out as sperm donors. And they can use everything from family courts to policy to punish or use those men to serve in their interests. You won't do it voluntarily. There are institutions she can use against them. Family court to the police department. Again, not talking about all. It's never been an all argument. It's a question of whether or not it is a feature of the culture. In other words, when you get married today, do you have to factor in whether or not this woman will divorce you? When there's an argument in the relationship and she goes to talk to her social network of friends and family members, does punishing you, punishing a man via institutions, is that part, is that a native part of that conversation? Well, if you've grown up as a male in a primarily female-led household, you know that far more often than not, yes, that actually is a feature. And this is the point I'm getting at. It is a feature in the dynamic. See, Men experiencing physical abuse from their girlfriends or wives, right? Happens. We know it happens bidirectionally. We know the data has shown us that women actually initiate the violence more. They tend to use weapons more often. They don't go to jail anywhere near as often men do for the same crimes. Men themselves will not report them. And that's what I mean. For men calling the authorities on women who have committed the same exact crimes that women will call the authority on. For men, it is not a feature in their worldview that the authorities be called, even if he is egregiously hurt. I've shown you case after case where men are experiencing this. Hell, neighbors will call the police before he will. And sadly, there are many situations where even when the police come in, they're operating with the same assumptions that most of society does. He's at fault. He's the cause. He's the villain. But my point in this is that the way we navigate and interact with these institutions, it has become a feature over the last five decades at least that those institutions that we readily identify with and use, be used and leveraged against men and boys in very key ways. Whether you're talking about boys being expelled or suspended in school, or whether you're talking about girls, uh, you know, having access to female teachers from K through graduate school. Both ways it functions 
is prioritized in a very particular way that does not serve him. And when this seems to be the case, and you can see articles like this affirming these narratives, it's disingenuous to argue that somehow black men are in a position of authority and power to leverage that power and patriarchy and, and oppression with no empirical evidence to suggest that they've ever had it in some kind of way. It doesn't work. And yet it's accepted as a common truth. That's the problem that gets me. It's accepted as a common truth simply because it's stated. And these are the kind of things that, that bother me because the more I see this happening, the less I see people identifying it for what it is. Again, we fixate on the individual actors. We do not comment on the culture. We do not comment on the structural reality behind it. Who produces the Jamilas and the Brittany Coopers? Is it just that they're just, you know, particularly uh, ambitious women that don't mind maligning men for, to advance themselves? One could argue that. But I'm more interested in the mechanism that manufactures a Jamila. That's the part of the discussion I didn't hear enough of. We were comfortable with talking about it strictly as an individual endeavor, but not as a process of undermining men in a very particular way. But that isn't to suggest that, that uh, these people are inhuman. It is to suggest that they are manufactured. And we got to look at the mechanisms for that manufacturing. How does it impact boys and men? How does it impact women and girls? How does it impact families and relationships? When I talked earlier, when I brought up, you know, men's relationship, emotional labor, in the shaming in the article that she does, one of the things she's actually calling for, much like white women, is uh, for chivalry. The argument she makes repeatedly in the piece is that women are not, black women are not foregrounded and protected enough. Right? And she repeats it in such a manner that black men are negligent in not doing so, right? Kind of aligning herself with white feminist ideas about the relationship between men and women and men's need to fall on their swords and be chivalrous in a very particular way. Shaming black men for not being that, for not doing that. Even though historically black men have been protectors, have died protecting and still do, contrary to popular opinion. But those acts, those sacrifices are ignored. And the tropes on Twitter and in articles like this continue. So the emotional labor men have to have to perform on a social basis, on a social level. If you are a good black man, that is, is to accept the responsibility of whatever is said about you. To accept that this must be true because she said it. And that you have to take the barbs and arrows and suffer them in silence and continue to sacrifice despite the inaccuracy of such accusations. This is where we're at with this. That's the emotional labor, to accept the sacrifice and shut up. Doesn't matter if it's accurate. Doesn't matter if she provides evidence or even attempts to. And this is what I'm getting at. I don't say these things because I'm mad at black women. I don't. 
I've had good experiences with black women. I've had bad experiences with black women. I've been with dark-skinned women. I've been with light-skinned women. I've been with women in the middle. I've been with short women, tall women, big women, thin women. I'm not saying these things because somebody hurt me. I'm not saying these things because I want to get back at them. I know that's the thing I get a lot when I post in, in, in Facebook. Well, you post all these things because you hate women. No. I post these things because women are not perceived as human. And black men in particular are beyond human to the point where we're monsters. So on both sides of the scale, there's imbalance. She's not human enough to talk about the foibles or evil she's capable of as part of her humanity. And black men are so inhuman that I have to have a segment on my show called the sacred black masculine just to remind people of black men's humanity, the imbalance is unequal. Now you have that imbalance for generations and then you tie that imbalance to access to society, access to employment, access to, to being able to purchase homes, to get jobs, white collar jobs, to even go to school and get degrees. When you tie those types of imbalanced gender narratives to access to society, it has a direct impact on not only how people see people, other folks, but what type of access they have being able to advance when the outcomes of your life appreciate that support no one when the access of it, it, you have access to you know the, the social access is tied to how you're perceived troy appreciate that support now don't get me wrong i'm not saying that you're limited to the point where you can't achieve brother kmk appreciate that support or i should say kmk um i appreciate that i don't know if you're a brother but i'm assuming i don't get <laughs> that's my primary audience so anyway but um i'm not saying you can't achieve i'm simply saying that this the the treatment the social treatment and the historical memory or i should say imagination about black men frames the context that you start at more often than not, especially if you're an American, an African-American brother. This very particular context or our experience more often than not. And that sets the terrain from your, for your starting point. People's perceptions of you, their assumptions and expectations of you, how little they expect especially when you're young and in school to how much violence they think you're capable of. All of those things are important because they shape the context that we engage life from. Shout out to uh, Brother Shabazz. Brother Byron, appreciate the support. This is what we're dealing with. We still have to provide this emotional labor. And it hurts my heart because I'm seeing things in a whole different way. This is why I don't chase ambulances anymore in terms of every article or tweet that comes out from some misandrist uh, feminist somewhere that hates men. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm in a very different place. I'm looking at the structural reasons behind it. I'm trying to examine the impact of the environment on personality, the impact of the environment on worldview, on behavior. 
and then raising the question, what options do men have to respond? There are political options. There are social options. I'm in conversation with people all the time trying to figure out what those options can look like. That's why we created the Black Male Political Agenda as a beginning point to actually talk about potential policies that can impact and support Black men's advancement. That's why we talk about social options, whether it's to you know vet women in a particular way, whether it's to redefine your sense of marriage and familyhood, or whether it's to abstain altogether. Providing options and putting them on the table. This is why I don't judge men for their relationship choices. I don't care if it's SYSBM, if it's monkhood, if it's marriage, if it's... I I support men in whatever their choice is. The only question I have for them is, are you aware that you do not have to be subject to other people's expectations of you simply because they have them? If you can have the freedom to live that way, then whatever choice you make, I'm in full support of. If you don't know you have that freedom, then I want you to hold off and making any permanent decisions until you've meditated on what that freedom means. So you don't end up unhappy in a bad situation. And it's very easy for us to fall into those bad situations simply because other people want them. This is part of what I was talking about last year with the black male dual economy. The options available to black men that require dual work, that require a doubling of effort to get out of, that others don't appreciate. Now you have someone like Jamila coming uh, with this a piece like this, and she gives the typical you know black feminist line: black men oppress others and think that their oppression is the only thing that exists. No, it's not that it's the only thing that exists. It's the extent to which that the the real empirically based experience of black men is dismissed. And we're at a point where even when we look at activism, we're seeing the use of black male bodies to their detriment. That's a problem. That's a real problem. One of the differences I have from some of the people I've seen make comments on stuff like this is that, as I said earlier, people believe this is an individual thing. Or at best, you got folks who are hired to act this way. I think it's more than that. I think this has been generationally handed down. I think there are worldviews and behaviors that are very much tied to this access and the assumption that the access will continue. And it has fundamentally reached the point where you actually have an embedded belief in black male inferiority intra-racially in terms of social dynamics this is where i'm at so i'm not interested in one hit piece written by what i call a colonizing agent see the key when i talked about colonizing agents i wasn't so much focusing on the individual i was focusing focusing on agent as in like structural network part of a larger construct programmed and that programming was inculcated internalized and set from childhood and it came with material benefit with access not a lot compared to other groups but enough 
doesn't take enough when you're coming from a community that doesn't have much. Really doesn't have to take a lot at all. We've witnessed in the last several decades the rise of a buffer class. And they're still using the narrative that we're oppressing them to advance themselves. And a lot of us believe it. And these are the things that I'm kind of having issues, I'm taking issue with. And it's drawn lines in friendships and relationships, even with other colleagues and academics. Because if you make the argument that this is something bigger than an individual achievement, or not achievement, but an individual endeavor, where you have a woman like Jamila writing a piece like this, if you make the argument that this is manufactured, that these people are like computer programs or like, uh, uh, you know, they're... the the old Fords being mass manufactured for the you know for the first time in human history, where we're seeing this happening on factory lines. If you start to look at it from that vantage point, a lot of us don't know what to do with that. This is why I don't stop at misandry. I look at that. This is why I talk about a gynocracy, and it's not to malign the women just for the sake of maligning them because I'm mad at them. No. It's because this has probably been one of the most effective tools used against the black family. Because there's no group of men prepared to fight their women. None. They're not. Socially, historically, no, they're not. And when it comes to our community, there's been a very particular block that has supported, has been supported, has been buoyed, you know, has been provided for in a very key way. All these brothers on YouTube making all this content, so many brilliant cats coming up with observations I never imagined. I ain't seen one of them in Vanity Fair yet. Let me bring in my boy. dialogue on some of this brother bgs hey doc what's going on how you doing man talking about this uh piece from vanity fair mm-hmm. and you know or pretty much what she calls herself doing is talking about the transphobia and sexism of dave Chappelle. right and making the argument that this is, um, you know, a reflection of black men. Yeah, of all black men, which most black men don't care one way or the other. Did you get a chance to, to check it out? I've seen bits and pieces of it, right? But uh, it started out almost like the, remember a few years ago where the, that piece uh, uh, calling uh, black men the white men of, of the black community? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Same group of yeah. feminists. Same group of feminists, but we're, we're supposed to be. And she starts off by saying that. Uh, uh, I said, Dr. Thunder. Okay. <laughs> yeah, put him up on the screen. He says, Truth be told, you don't owe anyone an explanation. We've just been conditioned to hedge in their direction. Keep fighting the good fight. Shout out to Dr. Thunder. Hope you're well. Um, well go ahead, man. Yeah, it, it's. it's uh, we're supposed to be. Uh, incapable you know where sisters have held it down and been strong and took up for us and being oppressors at the same time 
they're the they're they're the strong ones and they've had our back and they've held us up and they've held us up while we couldn't do anything but at the same time we we turned around and oppressed them yeah two yeah. things at the same time yeah and it's an interesting argument because it, it's very much it very much reflects the same posture that mm -hmm. white white feminists took with white men right you know and i find it uh more than coincidental that this is the method used you know, and that's not even dealing with uh, if you look at Tommy Curry's work on subculture of violence theory. Those of you who are longtime listeners of the show you know I interviewed him. Uh, ooh, I want to say uh, fall of 2020, where he came up and talked about subculture of violence theory. So basically, in a nutshell, what you have is racist theory produced by racist white scholars that black feminists literally appropriated, quoted from and cited in their work. And that became the foundation of how black men were viewed by, by much black feminist research. Yeah. You, you remember the old song by Billie Holiday, uh, Ain't Nobody's Business If I Do? I and have heard said, it. And she says, if I be, get beat up by my papa, I swear I ain't going to call no coppa. Oh, wow. In other words, what black women have always had the ability, you know, even before the Violence Against Women Act, right, to actually have uh their men uh put in jail for domestic violence always this you know so what what white women are experiencing with the violence against women act is nothing new to black men because i remember when i was uh you know i was like two or three years old you know this is in the south okay this is in right. dallas texas right mm. uh if my mother if, if my mother and father got into it and she felt you know my father's a little too angry all she had to do is pick up a phone and trust and believe Dallas police would come down and get him. Now, see, that's an interesting observation because if you look at this, the Jamila's article, mm -hmm. she talks about the extent to which black men don't appreciate that uh, you had this legacy of black women being socially pressured intra-racially in the community to mm -hmm. not call the authorities, but she completely overlooks the fact that they had access to it. Mm -hmm. You tell me what time period in, in, in 1908 mm -hmm. that black men were calling anybody because their woman hit him with a baseball bat or shot at him with a shotgun. He would get laughed at. There were no mechanisms in place for that. Black men they, still don't do it. They still get laughed at. I remember uh, the, the, the thing with the, uh, with the, uh, with the, uh, uh, I think it was in Cleveland, if I'm not mistaken. Where the, uh, the 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 man was wrestling on uh, the floor with his wife, he's the one that called the police, trying to get the rest of the wife out of her hand. The cop came right in through the door and shot him, and she had the knife. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So my thing was not just the article. Mm-hmm was the conversation about the article and i think that there's a line between those of us who are willing to critique feminism mm -hmm. and those of us that are willing to identify the, black women themselves yeah the, well, the, the, well, what we call the gynocracy itself the, which well, is the structure yes but i was going to frame it in terms of um the legacy of mm -hmm. feminism the legacy see here's the thing because you could say black mm -hmm. women and the only thing some people walk away with is that you said black women ergo, ergo you hate them 
Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about this, you know, for that kind of reason. I'm talking about this as a product of policy. Right. Generations of policy. Yeah. This is what I'm talking about. It's not a product of they woke up one day and decided that niggas wasn't shit. That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about conditioned behavior over generations. When your great, when your grandmother passes something down to you. Right. An outlook on men. A way of perceiving them as human doings and not human beings, as I've heard it said, right? This this goes beyond an individual misandrist that writes some article and hit piece veiled in black community love, but it's actually a straight attack at black men, heterosexual black men at that. Right, right. right. Well, we're, we're, the easy, we're the easiest uh, target. Okay, we're the, like, uh, so I want to say we're the sin eater of the uh, whole nation. If you want to go at um, uh, hatred or discrimination against LGBTQ or, or, or trans, you always pick a black male target. And Dave, Dave Chappelle happened to be a, a convenient target. Yeah. Because he actually did it in a comedy routine. And all of a sudden, uh, they gave them the license to actually paint a, a broad brush amongst all black men. In fact, uh, if you actually look up... Um, you know, even on YouTube, transgender, uh, you know, uh, discrimination. It's mostly uh, black trans women, for lack of a better term, talking about black males that won't date them. Yeah. They're about white males, but also always black males. Black males don't want to date trans males or trans women. Yeah. And they consider that oppression. But you know what? It, it, the other thing that comes to mind um, mm -hmm. when I think about, you know, when people use celebrities, as a way of critiquing black men, it's always mm -hmm. been a problematic thing for me. Um, and, and I remember sitting in graduate school, reading articles, like for example, I was in a feminist course, we were reading an article by Bell Hooks, and she was talking about the men in the audience who were watching, mm -hmm. who were at uh, Eddie, Mur uh, Eddie Murphy's performance for uh, Eddie Murphy Raw. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about how sexist the men were when they were cheering for some of the things he said. That's the moment we're having here with pieces like this in regard to black men's relationship to Dave Chappelle. It's not really about black men's relationship. It's about how one moment can be used to project black men in any way they want to project them for their own advancement and their own purposes. But it's not really an in-depth analysis or questioning of what exactly black men are applauding at. One of the things that, that comes to mind when you when you watch Raw, you have to put it in this historical context. This is the early 90s. That was the yeah. first time I'd heard anybody actually talk about the unfairness of, of a divorce judgment in family court. Right. For me. That was the first public time I saw that. And even though it was dealing with Johnny Carson, the question was that Eddie was putting on the table. If this is happening to men with hundreds of, of millions of dollars or whatever, right. and white, guy making twenty one thousand dollars a year in the hood. Yeah. What do you call it? Uh, um, fufu, right? Yeah. And Eddie, I want half. Well, and, and he and he was talking about the ways in which even women from a foreign space can be socialized into mm -hmm. this American Western identity yeah. of, of Western woman. And, and I mean, this is this is I mean, really, this is cutting edge for men in general, especially black men, because he was really he was really casting a warning at brothers that we would call now SYSBM or or, or no uh, passport bros. Yeah. 
passport bros. What he was essentially saying is be careful. He wasn't saying don't do it, but he was saying be careful. I remember you you saying that uh, uh, when you first started teaching your classes, right? It was mostly, you know, because, you know, where you teach is, is mixed. But the thing is, most of the classes are, you know, are, you know black male and used to be black male and black female. But increasingly because of the demographics, you have a lot more, you know, uh, Latino, Latinas. Yeah. And I remember you saying that um, um, the well, Latinas. Me, Eddie Murphy you know, Ryan was 87, my bad. 87, yeah. Yeah, but in, fact, I did, in fact, I saw that live with my fiance in 87 yeah. in Las Vegas. <laughs> I was in college at that time, so I I just blinked. But forgive me. Yeah. Go ahead. What were you saying? Sorry. Yeah. Well, I remember you saying that uh, that now, um, you know, you know, during in your writing classes, your Latinas want to write about intersexual feminism now. Yeah. Yeah. What, it, so, so it's 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 almost like it's become uh, on automatic. Okay. You go to you go to school, and it doesn't matter what your what culture you come from. Um, this, you know, this machine is producing the same thing. So it's not just black women. The thing is, is that the structure is producing, you know, uh, uh, even people could have come from a very different culture, almost the same thing, this, the same kind of tropes, the same kind of, uh, ideas. Go ahead. Well, it is. It, 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 one, one of the things I noticed, and I want to come back to this piece by Adrian Aquarius, I appreciate you saying that. Um, so I'll try and come back to that in a moment. I just want to put that on the screen because it was interesting. But um, no, you're right. I, I teach writing courses, writing classes uh, mm -hmm. every semester. and uh, But really in all my classes, the final project, whether it be a paper or a presentation or whatever, I give the students the choice to write on what they want. Right. And they have to pick from something we've covered in the semester and embellish on it with their own research, right? Mm-hmm. Nine, I would say 98.5% of the time, my female students will always choose to write on, on um, you know, gender, mm -hmm. you know, and they either do so from a feminist standpoint or a womanist standpoint. And, you know, especially in my intro to Africana studies courses, I teach gender theory. I teach, you know, and I, feminism, womanism, um, masculinism, you know, black male studies. I teach all of those, but the women will almost always choose to write on feminism. Um, I'm noticing an uptick as of this year in Latina students that choose to write on womanism. And the way I differentiate between the two is um, I talk about the womanists that historically have identified themselves as somewhat race first. Like they're, they're women that, that understand how feminism is being used against the community and they make the argument that instead of being perceived in terms of the research as a, you know, kind of an individualized character, that she wants to be categorized and framed uh, in terms of analysis as a unit of the family. So she doesn't regard herself as a separate female individual like in feminism. She regards mm -hmm. himself, herself as part of a family and community that is black. Right. So my Latina students I've noticed have started to gravitate toward that definition because it still allows them to deal with gender but it doesn't separate them from the context of their families. I can also say that I've seen a diminishment in how many uh, students I hear being introduced to alternatives to feminism. I've, I, over the last 20 years, I've seen a dramatic reduction mm -hmm. 
in terms of gender studies as to what alternatives are there for feminism. Anyway, um, shout out to K-Ron um, and to Great Nine Nine. Um, uh, K-Ron says intergenerational anti-black misandry. The mantra is the black man has never been, nor will he ever be good. Very true. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. Great I-9 says it's fascinating that people think nothing of this feminist training. Then they go out and become your workers, judges, attorneys, mm-hmm. policymakers. That absolutely. And we, we act like these things are not going to have lasting impact, how they're educated, how they're socialized, what types of access they have and, and what kinds of policies are produced. Especially when you talk about education and the access people have to electoral politics after getting a degree, what kind of politicians do you think it's going to create if we're socializing via in the home and media and in school, very particular outlook on black men. What do you think is going to manifest a generation later in our policy? Right. Yeah. But this particular piece by Adrian Aquarius is interesting. Adrian says, this reminds us, this reminds us of the show black lightning. Oh, I'm sorry. This is the wrong. This is, a, this is another one he posted or Adrian posted. Um, father didn't like her being gay and when she popped the question he didn't care and was happy for um yeah we see this kind of you know idea being promoted um you know and yet black men who um are supportive of their children you know regardless of their sexual choices how many television Mm -hmm. shows do you see about that um (laughs) uh you don't you don't. The, the only thing you see is uh, was it not was it uh, Empire where he throws his son into the trash can? Right. Exactly. Exactly the opposite. Yeah. And I have, uh, you know, at, anyway. Uh, <laughs> at the end, I don't want to go down the, you know, I have friends <laughs> line, but at the end of the day, I, mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've witnessed black men who demonstrated nothing but love for their children. I can't mm-hmm. say I've seen that representation in popular media. No. This is the piece from Adrian I was interested in. Um, I've noticed, I noticed, I haven't seen any think pieces about how the black trans community hates cis black women. I don't know if people know Saucy Shaw and her, her, them calling out black women for their homophobia. It, it's interesting because early in the 1980s, I'd mm-hmm. seen some tensions between um, heterosexual black women and lesbian black women in the movement, um, you know, talking about, you know, the treatment of uh, lesbian women by heterosexual women. And then it just kind of disappeared, and especially in terms of popular media representation. And now you have this block of the sisterhood, right? That even kind of, you know, transgresses race. And now, you know, women are just women. They're this category of sisters around the world that need to fight the oppression. And it's like, interesting. Hmm. So we're not going to show men that are actually, you know, progressive and supportive. Um, we're not going to show women who can be, um, you know, homophobic or transphobic it's just going to be projected on the men mm-hmm. okay that's interesting I, you know, the way i tend to look at it, especially in terms of trans issues i notice the misandry even within that yes yes extreme you know uh, i talked about this before even when we were talking about uh remember a few years ago we were talking about policies as far as, far as public bathroom use yes and whether or not trans should be you know have their own bathrooms who should go to what bathrooms and Nobody had a problem with trans men going into men's bathrooms. No. That was never part of the discussion. 
it was biologically biologically born men right who were the discussion yes you know so i even when i look at trans issues i still see misandry play out in some very interesting ways i've yet to hear a man talk about how frustrated he is that a trans man is coming in and using the same bathroom well you, you know you know what doc because this is I, I, you've probably seen this phenomenon right um especially at big events where um uh where where there's a line for the bathroom mm-hmm. especially for women because you know they don't have urinals like men do right so they have right. left appliances available for women to actually uh use right so you see this mm-hmm. big line for, uh, big line for the uh women's bathroom mm-hmm. and guess what women do during you know uh during those kind of circumstances mm. they simply walk over to the men's bathroom <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the guy, you know, the, the guy, will, you know, the men will look up and like, you know, and uh, they say, why, why are you here? They said, well, we don't have any more room in our bathroom. And they'll go back to doing what they're doing. They don't care. <laughs> go back to doing what they do. Yeah. You know, <laughs> as long as they're not trying to get no free looks, you know. But it is. <laughs> well, and that depends on the woman, you know. You don't need to go there, you know. But, yeah, it, 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 you know, I just find it interesting the way these things are slanted. And they tend to be slanted in ways that, um, you know, re- reinforce the idea of black male inhumanity. <laughs> Um, much appreciation, Jason Baz. Um, much appreciation for that. You know, because sometimes you you know I look at this stuff and I'm like, I don't. Should I say something about this? I mean, you know, does everybody see what I'm seeing? And I kind of get to the point, you know, where I assume everybody sees it until I hear a broadcast mm-hmm. or I read an essay, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I do have to say something. Okay. Well, you, well, the thing is, uh, what I'm glad about is that uh, for years, especially in this space, man, this has been going on for a long time. And in this space, we have been, we used to talk about it a lot because nobody else did, right? So I'm actually glad that, you know, um, the academics that are actually been sitting on the fence, not saying anything, not, not going back at these particular, uh, uh, these kind of, uh, articles and stuff like that they, they, they were just silent i'm glad they actually starting to break their silence yeah because when uh when homeboy actually wrote the book the, not wrote the book uh we actually talked about what okay we actually uh uh wrote the article about uh uh the black men being the white men of the black community right mm-hmm. they didn't say anything they were silent Okay, and when he talked about a black men getting a big, big big piece of chicken i know you've heard that term before they're silent but i'm thinking is you know now that you know the i think the the black males have a voice and it's becoming more popular now they have to you know now they have to come off the fence and have to pick a side okay you're gonna have to give a counter narrative and basically for the most part it shouldn't be up to the um the layman to check an academic that should be checked at that level like Jamil Lemieux should be checked at that level, right? It, sh- it shouldn't be uh, uh, the black manosphere going in on Jamil Lemieux or Brittany Cooper, right? Shouldn't be us. It should be uh, doing what academics have always done: Ch- uh, rein in each other and check each other and check that kind of that kind of kind of language. She should, you know, they they're the ones that should uh, to a person, you know, come come in and go in on her, okay? Mm-hmm. 
And I'm glad to see it start, at least start, you know, in my opinion, because I'm not an academic. I don't think they went far enough. But the thing is, at least they said something. At least they pushed back against this narrative. Which is why I said earlier, I'm glad to see it in one vein. And another, my frustration was, you know, we've developed this kind of framework where we don't, we're hesitant to critique feminism. And I understand why. I mean, there's definitely a blowback that can affect your career, your reputation, all of that. There's, you know, but still, w- with that hesitation, and that hesitation being so well ensconced over, you know, really generations, um, mm-hmm. we've gotten to the point where even when we call it out, we don't really know how to. You know, so it, it, at best, it becomes about Jamila. And again, I'm I'm not interested in the car. I'm interested in the company right. that made the car. Right. You know what I mean? I'm interested in the manufacturer, not just the vehicle on the street. Right. Now, this quote by Great I-9, I find very interesting. Great says, and the fact that black men show collective tolerance for all of these movements is an act of collective emotional labor and compassion from black men. Shout out to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but it also relates to, and BGS, you remember this, when I used mm-hmm. to talk about the black male dual economy. Right. Yes. The extra labor that black men have to perform in order to compete. And that labor yes. can be, you know, formal layer labor in terms of employment, but it can also be sacrifices that are unnamed like this. Right. The shaming that she uses in this article is is directly what, I, you know, a form of uh, labor that she, she's asking for. But it's also a dual responsibility that becomes, um, you know, part of an economic part of an economy a social economy that we live in that we have to perform extra duties in to function and so there's so many layers to this stuff that i'm, I'm really want you know the, to produce i want to really kind of create the kind of terminology we can use to be more exact in what our frustrations are or at least at the very least um and identifying what it is we're trying to say this is what some of the brothers reaching out to me in the last week have been saying about uh, male relationship emotional labor they were talking about they had been trying to find ways to explain Mm -hmm. what they were experiencing and having trouble and the reason we're having trouble is the only gendered vocabulary vocabulary we have for explaining our experiences are feminists yes the assumption is appreciate the support tim the assumption is that it, it should suffice as long as it applies well to women's experiences as if men don't have different experiences that may require their own vocabulary or better yet, their own departments to study, their own institutes, their own resources, you know, for those who are who are suffering or struggling with, uh, you know, being able to navigate society. It, we, we have the assumption that as long as the, the institutions are in place for women, that's that's enough. And we should be good. Yeah. No. yeah. Uh, and then shout out to Tim who says this is why black male media is so important to dispel the false narrative, repair our image and tell our true stories. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But but the thing is, is that there there should be something and there is something called academic review. Mm. And when stuff like this comes out, there should be an academic review. Okay. Because she's been held up as an academic. She's been held up as as a knowledge worker. Mm -hmm. And, and at that level, I do believe that, you know, which hasn't been, Okay, 
with the Britney Coopers, with with these kind of people, with this whole milieu of of disinformation. There hasn't been enough of of pushback at the academic level. That actually bleeds down to uh, uh, black boys not deserving of anything. Okay, like when I think when you earlier in the uh, show you're saying that when you actually set up programs uh, to actually help underserved boys, it was always well, what about the girls? Right. Even though they know that girls have you know uh, three, four, five, sometimes even ten more programs, and boys have none. Right. That's the first question asked. As soon as they see boys, if you see a program for girls, very few people ask what about the boys, what about the men. Very few. And this is the interesting thing about it too. When you talk about the the you know the pushback mm-hmm. coming from um, non traditional spaces against you know scholars, you know people coming out of the academy. The interesting thing about that is you also have to tie that to the diminishing access of black men to higher education. Mm-hmm. Well, I shouldn't even say diminishing. I mean, this has been diminished for generations. I've I've talked about this repeatedly. You know, from 1976 to 2019. Black men literally have half the degrees black women do. Mm-hmm. And this directly impacts who's sitting in the classrooms, who's publishing academic papers, directly impacts that. This is why in Jamila's piece, she's citing so many other black feminist scholars because they're, they're, there's they're plenty abundant. of them. They're, they're abundant. abundant. Yeah. But when it comes to black men, let alone black men who've taken a position where they're willing to publicly call feminism into question, there are very few black men in the first place. And so that being said, you have less fertile ground uh, to produce a widespread response to this kind of thing. And this is what makes it difficult. And this is one of the things that's so frustrating about social media for so many people, because now you have black men speaking out. But the downside to that is that if you have a woman with a Ph.D. who's writing a hit piece like this. Right. And the brother who does a video on YouTube to respond to it, who may not have a degree. Mm-hmm. It could be accurate all day long. Now, it's going to, you know, people who listen are going to be able to take and learn from him. But if he doesn't have the same standing, there's going to be a dig used against him. He, mm-hmm. you know, his lack of formal training, his lack of certification is going to be used against him to suggest that he doesn't know enough about what he's saying. Ergo, he doesn't need to be heard. And this is right. fortified even more by the fact that this piece is in Vanity Fair. Right. Yeah, and, and one thing, in other words, who are you? Who are you? And one of the things I found interesting lately is there's been an attack on men in the manosphere, right? And I find it interesting that this attack has is, is, is been framed in terms of, you know, these, these men who are just destroying the community, talking about X, Y, and Z. And I find it interesting because when I look at the feminists, when I look at women who, or not even women, just feminists who have been coming, who've come out of these formal spaces, where they've been able to benefit white collar jobs, multi hundred thousand dollar incomes. They're paid uh, to be in positions like this, to write these kinds of pieces. The guys that I'm seeing mostly responding to to this stuff are saying it on self-financed social media platforms Mm -hmm. coming out of their pockets, reading whatever they can to mount a response. And the reason they have to is because they don't trust any institution to speak on their behalf. There's no black men. There are not enough. I wouldn't say no. There are not enough black men willing to be outspoken for black men as a whole to wait for a black academic to come forth and speak the truth on it. It is not enough of us. 
So black men are speaking up for themselves wherever they are, whatever they're right. training. Yeah. And I support that. I support it. Because if, if if that didn't happen, there'd be no response. Because if you leave it to black men who are trying to keep their jobs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's real. And that's real. And you, you, you're in the academy, you know, when with the, the, the poo-poos this, you know, uh, black men speaking out on their own behalf. Yeah, yeah that's real. Mm-hmm. Shout out to uh, Dr. Rashid. How you doing, brother? You know, um, but you wanted to share something. Oh yeah, the, this uh, um, this you is put, you, you know, want me to put it up. It, it, put, put it on the screen. Yeah, and this what? is uh, this is something that's been going around, and this is just this is just a week, okay? And uh, normally, we, we people don't have any money. You you send them on their own recognizance if they don't you know if they can't play the uh, the cash bill. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, and these are the three highest. This is Harris County. Remember those nine judges got uh, elected in Harris County? Yeah, nine black female yeah. judges. Okay, uh, they they actually uh, they actually uh, it's supposed to be legal to actually uh, block people up because they're poor. Mm-hmm. And uh, in in Harris County, they they have this something that uh, where you know they're gonna if you don't have money to bail yourself out, cash money to bail yourself out. They're going to hold you over for pre-trial in pre-trial detention, mm-hmm. and they just took a week, right? And these are the three highest judges that actually would do that, right? Mm-hmm. Now, and they, there's the black females, and this. Uh, do you have you heard anything about this other than uh, uh, on black male social media? Can you enlarge that? Oh. Hold on. You know what, BGS? This this was the thing I told you I didn't remember. Yeah. <laughs> This was what I was. This will remember. Uh, I don't know how clear it is, but uh, you can read it at the top. Okay. On average, on an average night last week, six six thousand forty three people were actually locked in a cage at Harris County Jail because they couldn't afford money bail, even though it is illegal to jail people solely because they are poor. This report uses jail population data provided by Harris County to compare the pre-child detention numbers of Harris County felony judges. Okay, and these are the top three. Okay, and replace that with a male. Okay, replace that with a white male. What will be said about this by academics? Yeah. Yeah, they go to town. They go to town. Replace it with black males. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They go to town for a different set of reasons or an overlapping set. Part of it would be uh, patriarchy. The other Patriarchy. part of it would be black male inferiority, lack of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, who's he married to? You who's know, all kind yeah. of slander pieces. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, uh, the, basically, the, the 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 like Clarence Thomas would say, high tech lynching, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, even the white females couldn't get away with this. Why is it three black females are the highest? It just got elected. But this is and, the same. Go ahead. And, and, and elected to actually be a representation uh, for black men. Imagine in Harris County, who are the men that are actually getting locked up that are poor? Mm. They'd be mm. black and Latino. And who are the judges locking them up? And and and, and nothing is said. Right. Because even even as knowledgeable as you are, you you barely heard a whisper about this. 
Yeah. Well, this is this is fundamentally why I had problems with um, um, uh, Kamala Harris being elected. It, it, it's not if, if the politics is just about skin color, then we are wholly prepared for how that's going to be used against us. Right. You know what I mean? If, if yeah. we're not actually talking about what their actual viewpoint is, if you're going in as a judge, especially in a predominantly black area, my question is, what is your policy about how you're going to engage the community and most particularly black boys and men? What exactly are your philosophies about this? What mechanisms are you willing to advance and support? If, especially if you see, you know, a, a, a number of black boys coming across your, your bench or, you know, depending on what kind of judge you are, you know, but what's the philosophy behind how you work? Because if it's just going to be lock people up, then why exactly do I need to go out my way to support you in a judgeship? Remember the, 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 the black female prosecutor that was arguing with the judge because he wanted to show, show leniency to a black oh, boy? Oh, yeah, I do remember that clip. Yeah. It was a white judge who was showing lenience uh, to a, a, a black. Was he a teenager? A teenager, yeah. yeah. And uh, and was I think it was the prosecution. Yeah. She, she was actually you know arguing against a white judge about it. It was it was sad to see. It was sad to see, but the thing is, is that like you were saying, it's not you know when you say colonizing agent and you talk about the structure, okay? Right. Right. And instead of about the person, okay, this is this is about the structure. You're looking at it. Yeah, it is. It is about the structure. You know what? What? What kind of? What kind of environment uh, uh, gave them this worldview? Instead of giving leniency to poor black men or even poor Latino men, you know they 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 put them in pre-child detention. They go ahead and lock them up. Doesn't matter whether they have jobs, families, or or a life outside. Right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. Shout out to Gold Professor and AB in the chat. Hope you brothers are well. Appreciate the support. Uh, y'all make sure you support, uh, you know, their channels. Check them out. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. This was what I was asking you about before. I was like, I knew there was something. Okay. <laughs> I, I was having a, what they call it, a senior moment. I've been okay. having a lot of them. I was like, man, I knew there was something I wanted to ask him about. But I didn't have this. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to check these out. Yeah, and it, you know, if this this is a screenshot. I don't know if there's an article or not. I, I was mm-hmm. looking for an article. I haven't found it yet. When I find it, I will actually post it in the uh, in the comment section. I saw it, but I, I I misplaced it, and I didn't remember their names. I was like, Damn. okay. Well, thank you for uh, for posting that up. But yeah, absolutely. This is what we're dealing with. So I just this you know we're dealing. It, it, this I wanted to kind of put this mm-hmm. into some kind of a framework because I'm glad to see. People are starting to speak out, but I'm noticing that the way people are speaking out is still, there's still an avoidance for wanting to call out what's happening beyond the surface. And I think the fear is, you know, um, what exactly are, am I advocating if I'm willing to take this critique to the fullest extent? Where does it go? You know, does this mean that, uh, you know, I hate women or I'm trying to do, no. We have to actually look at, at, at what's actually happening in families, in communities, generationally. What's going on? What are the beliefs? What are the, what are the kinds of worldviews that are being shaped and passed down? What are the kind of lessons that are being taught, both in, how, in, in families and in society, 
about how to perceive black men. And if black men remain a problem, no matter what they do, what does that produce? And what are we going to see in the next generation mm-hmm. if we don't even create the language to call out the nuance of what it is we're experiencing? I want to actually be able to sit down with my son and explain the expectations mm-hmm. of the emotional labor that are going to be placed on him. So he can choose whether or not to perform it. To perform it, yeah. And and uh, I always said uh, uh, value your light and attention and get mm-hmm. a reward for it. Don't I always said your your emotional labor. I didn't actually use the uh the term emotional labor. Thank you for that, mm-hmm. Dr. Johnson. Um uh, but I always said I always said your 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 uh your attention, okay, what you give, okay, has a cost, has a value. Mm-hmm. When you sit there and you listen to your girlfriend, your wife, uh your significant other or even your female family member rattle on about her day, mm-hmm. okay? That is that that is not um there's, there's a value to that, right? And most men have been trained that 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 is that there's no value to it. Women value it all the time. If they have to sit and listen to you, they value that. Oh yeah. Uh, or they put a price tag on it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I can't. You know, it's funny to me. Uh, you know, just you know. And sometimes I talk about I talk about this with you off camera. You know, if I have a first date or something, and I yes, can, it's funny to me how how often you can sit with somebody for hours. And they can talk about themselves and never once ask you a question. It just it, it's a one way conversation. But there's a kind of um, sensibility that at the end of the day, you're there for pre-established mm-hmm. reasons. Mm-hmm. You you are you're you're being interviewed to provide for her reality. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot about you that that needs to come into that conversation as far as how some people train. So those are the kind of questions that I want to kind of tease out. And put on the table for us to look at directly. We can just avoid all of this kind of guesswork. You know, that's really what I'm interested in doing. Shout out to Andrew. Uh, He says, keep up the great work. Your platform is much needed. Much appreciation for that. Thank you. Um, You know, like I said, in the last pre-recorded video I did, I said, you know, I, I don't know who I'm speaking to. I don't know who may need to hear it. I'm gonna put this on the table. You know, because I just have the feeling that this is something that uh, needs to be discussed. And somebody is going to is going to, you know, be able to pick up the ball and run with it. Yeah, because you know what? If the thing is, is that I, I think and I, I saw that piece and. Uh, and I've seen. Um, uh, men work, you know, most of their lives, uh, 50, 60 hours a week. And uh, to the point where they can't work anymore, right? They get sick and they die, you know, in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. And uh, as you say, uh, a big mama or, you know, mama or, you know, uh, becomes Mm -hmm. matriarch and she inherits the house and the wealth and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And within a couple years, guess what? He's forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. You might see a a wedding picture of, of her and him. You know, on the wall someplace and say, well, who's that? He's not he's not revered. He's not remembered the same way. Oh, you can watch grandkids that couldn't tell you his first name. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting one for me. Big Mama's house. He worked for 40 years for. Mm-hmm. Don't nobody remember the man's first name. Mm-hmm. And then folks want to know why he either drank himself to death or worked himself to death. 
but these are the kind of structures, these are the kind of practices that really begin to explain even our grandparents, great-grandparents, grandfathers, their experiences that they did not often have a voice for. I think about how many men died in families working mm-hmm. with no fucking voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, none. Mama ran the house. And this is why I said in my last video, so many of us are living our lives in a way just so we can have a damn good eulogy. Mm-hmm. The man is remembered as being a good man, a good black man. He supported his family. And that's all well and good. I'm not taking that away from him. But if that's all that's said about him, you know, I talked about this last year. I had a I had a Latina uh, student in my class and she wanted to do a paper on her grandmother. Mm-hmm. She wanted to talk about how her grandmother had endured, you know, sexism from her husband and, you know, how difficult her life had been. And I said, OK, well, you know, now I didn't say this to her, but my first thought was I I get that paper you know, several times a semester. So it ain't, you know, but I kind of got annoyed because I was tired of it. So I said, well, let me ask you a question. I just started asking questions. Usually I just say, fine, you write on, write on, you know, mm-hmm. as long as you have the proper amount of research and you do write it the right way, go ahead. But this time I wanted to push back a little bit. She caught me on that. I, you know, what did they say? I got time today. Yeah. <laughs> she caught me on one of those days. I was like, I got time today. So I was like, well, let me ask you a question. I said, you know, what's your grandmother's situation? She's a single mother, you know, she's working. No, no, she's been a stay-at-home wife her entire life. I said, oh. I said, what did her husband do? Oh, well, he works in the, he always worked in the fields, you know, picking fruit, picking vegetables. I said, really? Huh. I said, how many hours a day did he do that? Oh, 12. Yeah, it's 12 hours a day. I said, how many days a week? She said, six. Interesting. So I said, you're telling me that your grandmother was a stay-at-home wife who raised, you know, generation of three or four kids Mm -hmm. and your grandfather did back-breaking labor for 40 years 12 hours a day six days a week the man she and she she mentioned that he never you know called out sick he went to work Mm -hmm. several of the kids went to college and earlier in the conversation she dismissively only referred to her grandfather as a sexist patriarch Wow. And I was like, so he sent multiple kids to college. He had a grade school education, if that, worked backbreaking labor for four decades. I said, let me ask you something. I said, did you ever trail your grandmother? She said, what do you mean trail? I said, did you follow her throughout her day and do the things she did? Did she teach you how to do the things she did? She said, yeah, you know, she taught me how to do X, Y, and Z. And I did this and I did that. I said, okay. I said, did you ever trail your grandfather? She said, hell no. Said that work is ridiculous. That was too hard. I said, Oh, too hard. I said, Okay, well, what were the sexist things he did? Did he beat her? She said, No. I said, Did he sexually violate her? She said, No. He was just macho, machismo. I said, Wow. The difference between that conversation mm-hmm. and some of the conversations I've had with some of my black female students is the girl at least mentioned her grandfather. Mm. Okay. She knew his name. Mm. And he was still alive. So she was going to write this paper and present it to her grandmother in honor of her grandmother and completely dismiss 
and make invisible her grandfather's sacrifices that put her in a position to where she was the second generation to go to college and never had to work in a field. Mm. And I still had to step back and say, she at least remembered her grandfather's fucking name. Mm. And it broke my heart. I got off that phone sad. Because in 23 years of teaching, let me see, this 20, 24 years now, 24 years of teaching in higher education, that doesn't include when I taught K through 12. Um, I never once had a student write about their grandfather, a black student, black female student at that. There was a period where I actually forced them to do that for my black male course, you know, but it didn't have to be a grandparent. It just had to be a man over 40. And um, I still haven't seen it. So when I talk about the kind of, you know, um, contempt for black men, even in families, it's been going on for generations, but I've never actually seen it, seen it called out until very recently. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as a grandfather or as a man of your age, what have you mm -hmm. seen along those lines, particularly in families? They, you know, they work, uh, you know, I, I see it, you know, they, they work, uh, they work very hard to, to actually, you know, uh, erase the contribution of the, of the man. And I've seen it. And, uh, they work very hard trying to push, you know, you into a particular role, a role of service. Yeah. And, uh, and they, they literally, they, you know, they literally want to take up all the room with the children. To the point where, you know, uh, and I've seen it in my own family where the, the children will call if they unless it's something that they absolutely know that the women do not know or can't handle. They will always call the women first. Okay. If they want advice, they want advice on life. They will always call the women first. Even the even even the boys will do the same thing. I was just my about son to does. Say that. Yep. Yeah. No, even the boys will do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And the only time. I get called, or I, you know, where they will refer to me is because because the women have said I can't handle this. Mm. Call, call your grandpa or call your daddy. Mm. Wow. In other words, I am the last option. Yeah. See, I think for me, one of the things that I question is mm -hmm. if the only space that a black male who is making a significant contribution to the household. The only space he's respected in, at least performative, uh, performatively, is the bedroom. And what do we have happening? If, if, if he's only given respectful treatment in one room in the house, what is the nature of our families? Now, I understand that is not an academically positioned question. I'm not framing that around the data, although I'm pretty sure I could. I'm just asking the question, what does it mean for the state of black men and families if the structure is not in place or at least appreciated where his sacrifices are warranted, uh, uh, warrant respect or at least acknowledgement, even generations later? You know, that's the question I'm curious about. Okay, appreciate that. Uh, um, okay, so 
She says, when the children disrespect the patriarch, it is the duty of the matriarch to redirect and correct that treason. Grandma couldn't have done what she did had grandpa not done what he did. Yeah. Yeah, well, I wish it was enforced, but uh, <laughs> it's not. Yeah, but that's, you know, that was it, man. I just, um, you know, I was looking through this piece and I just, you know, I, it was really more about how it could be written and how it could be published in a way where, you know, it's getting, you know, high level platform, mm -hmm. no research, no citations, no references of note to back many of these points. And it can be so easily consumed, you know, mm -hmm. on a widespread basis. And in, in as much as it is, is it lit my heart to see people publicly critique mm -hmm. this. I want to make sure that we just we don't you know reduce it too much to just her, just you know well she's she's a she's a bad person. Okay, well, again, who manufactured her? Yeah, she and she's not the, she's not the only one. How does this? How do how do they have uh, uh, Vanity Fair have the nerve or the gall to think that they could actually publish this such blatant misandry? Exactly. Because they thought they because they thought they could because they've done it in the past and nobody yeah. said anything. Yeah, in a weird kind of way, you know, I can even understand it on a black platform, a black magazine. Because you know, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of these magazines are consistently misandrous, but you know, at least they're black. You know, but mm -hmm. when this is up in Vanity Fair, when this is when this kind of thing is up in Time Magazine, what are we talking about? When have you seen black men? Be able to do this and get such high level you know support you know random black men it's one thing if you got an eddie murphy or a dave Chappelle who's kind of climbed the ranks of fame but you know just a random person who's able to publish a hit piece indicting an entire gender on the basis of three or four celebrities and then have it put in time mm-hmm you know, Rolling Stone. I mean, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, you know. if if man did if if the shoe was on the other foot, the, the man would have to worry about his career. Oh my God! Well, he it wouldn't be published for mm -hmm. one, and yes, he would still have to worry about his career. <laughs> Not even published, and he still got to worry. You know, it is. This is one of the things I was talking about in uh, in Torrin's uh, web stream, or I don't know what you call it. It's, it, it. It looks like Clubhouse on Twitter. That's how I know I'm old. It, it, I would, use, it, it would be a podcast, a Twitter a Twitter cast, I think is what they call it. I don't know what they... You know, mm. I'm so bad, I didn't even know how people were putting all the emoticons on the screen. I was like, how y'all do that? You know, <laughs> I, it's, yeah, anyway, but you know, at one point, when they were talking about black male studies, he, he posed the question you know, what are some of the difficulties and, and issues that black male studies scholars face? Um, and I pointed out, you know, you know, a couple things, but the main thing, one of the, well, I should say the secondary thing I mentioned was the difficulty some black male scholars have with trying to get into positions mm -hmm. and the ways in which, now there, are, you know, and Tommy, you know, accurately pointed out, there are brothers who are well-established in the academy who are black male studies, don't get me wrong. They don't have institutes, they don't have departments, but they are individual black male studies scholars that are doing well. But there are many 
who, whether in graduate school or who are looking for positions, they get a lot of pushback where they're kind of silently being punished mm-hmm. for not even just publications, but having a willingness to focus on black men. That alone is grounds for punishment. And the way that punishment sometimes manifests is uh, when, when you go up for a job, you know, in the academy, in case people don't know, it takes a year most of the time to get a job. You apply in the fall, you uh, interview in the spring, you move in the summer, and you start the following fall. So, you know, it's a big deal if you lose your position or it's a big deal when you want to move somewhere else because you don't just take it and go. It takes okay. a year. Um, but what you'll see happening is there'll be a job search and then they'll, of course, prioritize the candidates they want to hire. And you might make it into the top two or three and then find yourself gone. And I was saying that uh, many of us have also had the experience where someone from the committee will call you under the table mm-hmm. and say, this is what happened in the session that puts you at the last position or got you kicked off the prioritized hire list because the feminists in the room took issue with the fact that you wrote this or they think that you're, uh, you know, this, you know, th- these kinds of under the table statements that cost mm-hmm. brothers positions. But then, that, but then, as I said, that goes back to who's getting educated, who's getting degrees, who's in positions of authority in the academy, who's in teaching positions. There are tens of thousands more black women teaching in the academy than black men. Far more. Yeah. Far more, yeah. And this has an impact on what actually, who actually gets taught, what lessons they get, and from who. You know, and at the end of the day, you know, so they're also the ones in position on hiring committees to make these kinds of decisions. I had a brother reach out to me from a university just very recently, a couple months ago, and he talked about the ways in which sitting in a committee meeting where they were mm-hmm. supposed to hire someone, they actively stated that regardless of what the job description said, they were only going to hire a black woman. Mm. And this was a room full of black women except for him. And he said they didn't even care I was sitting there. Didn't even care. <laughs> they didn't care. <laughs> they didn't care what they were doing was illegal, was against policy, didn't care. And if, another, and, and if he another, said something, he'd have to worry about his job. He'd worry about his job, yeah. Basically, yeah. You know, uh, get excommunicated from the church. Yeah. But any thoughts, any last thoughts? Uh, you know, I just wanted to get, to get up and put this out today um, I, 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 that's what i'm saying I'm, I'm glad that maybe um this is uh the beginning of something good maybe that uh the pendulum will start swinging back in the other direction to where we can get a little bit more fairness where somebody like you can and dr thunder even even in, in his institution at ohio state can get things implemented for black boys for black males get some kind of equity mm-hmm. you know because it's it's gone so far that you almost have like a black male erasure on the college campus now. Unfortunately, yeah. I, know, I know you look um, in Fresno State, which used to be, you know, where the black athletes used to go and black males used to go if they couldn't go anyplace else. You know, two places they would go is like Long Beach State and, and Fresno State. Right. And now you have almost none. Well, you know, there's a contingency of black male athletes. It's just mm-hmm. when you're looking at the black male population. Right. on the campus it's it's i mean it's probably between a third and a quarter of what it was when i started in 2000 i think i started 2008 mm-hmm. here, here in fresno it's probably between a third and a quarter 
of 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 the numbers they used to have, and it's always been a really small percentage. Right, but it's dropped dramatically. Dramatically, yeah. You know, and and, and, and despite the activism and you know things students have tried to do to bolster the numbers, it's dropped dramatically. Yeah, and and this is uh, th- this is you know this is all over the country. This this is not isolated to California. Yeah, it's all over the country. You know, and then and then you you look at uh, what happens at you know K through twelve, and then you, you you get a good idea why that is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I I talked about an article last one. I think it was uh, summer of uh, twenty twenty that mm-hmm. was basically arguing that black men were an endangered species at HBCUs. Yes. Blew me out of my chair. You know. But, but this is the this is the climate, and I'm curious to see what the data is going to be as far as the impact of the uh, the pandemic on oh, everything yeah. from homelessness to you know uh, you know education. Um, I'm curious, graduation rates. I want to see it. Oh yeah, yeah. It 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 start it's starting to trickle out. I, I did. I can't name them because I you know I I saw them, but I you know I didn't you know read them yet. But it's starting to trickle out where the uh, uh, People of color and boys of color is going to have to take a tremendous hit. Tremendous hit. It's going to get. You think it's bad now? It's going to get worse. This is a shout oh, out to Doc. Oh, go ahead. Oh, nine, yeah, ninety-three percent of of high school valedictorians are females. That's true. You know, uh, Doctor Thunder. Uh, he said that's not just black folk, but it no, holds. It holds. Yeah. Uh, this, you know, this is uh, something that was especially with black folks, right? And this is something that Clark said uh, back in the fifties. It was eighty percent of uh seventy-five to eighty percent of all uh, valedictorians were black female. Yeah. So so you know, uh, it's just now catching up with everybody else. But the it's thing also, is, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say in terms of black graduations, I've never been to a black graduation where the ratio wasn't eighty to twenty females to males. Hmm. And that's in terms that's not even valedictorian, that's just the numbers graduating. Hmm. I'll sit there at this point. If you invite me, and I do this at Fresno State too, but if you invite me to your black graduation, I'm going to sit there before, you know, before I have to speak or anything. And I'm going to literally count the graduates, not only in the program, but sitting in front of me. And of course, the ones in the pro, there's usually more in the program that you're holding. And, you know, the, the you know, the, the program you're reading through and you're looking at the faces, of all the graduates, there's more of them in the program than who showed up graduation right. day. Right. But it's still roughly an 80-20 ratio far too much of the time. And the, the thing about it is even in the celebration of people graduating, I'm always astounded at how absent we are before, during, and after the ceremony on black male graduation rates. Nobody seems to care. But 10 years later, when you're talking about not having a husband that can, that can produce, uh, you know, uh, uh, parity, like, well, I, you know, after after four generations, you know, I don't see why there's such a big disconnect, and why uh, women at that level can't can't at least replicate what they've done. It, it you know, it's starting to not make sense. Look, I uh, I appreciate um, you guys joining me tonight. This was. Um... So something I just wanted to kind of get off my chest and and you know kind of put something out there on. So I appreciate you, BGS, for coming up. Um, I start classes next week, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get my videos in, but uh, <laughs> I gotta I gotta get ready uh, for the semester. 
Yeah, that's true. You gotta you might have to do what Rom does. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> Rom is a machine, man. He's, he's a machine. Move. He's a machine, but he's consistent. Yeah, he's very consistent. Um, but I will be doing a lot of my uh my syllabus preparation from my bathtub. <laughs> so you know, if y'all see some some videos where I'm not on the screen and you hear water splashing. Uh-huh. I am enjoying my new tub, so I might be doing some some videos from there, some recordings. Because, uh, hey, all I'm gonna say is, it's, it's I'm enjoying it. We're gonna we're gonna call it a uh, a Jedi meditation chamber. Hey, man, it damn near looked like one the way I got it set up, boy. <laughs> dude. Uh, but no, none. I appreciate you coming up, man. Thank you, um, and shout out to those of you who are listening. Appreciate the support. Um, we're going to call it a night. Um, Indigo Flow, appreciate that support. He said, t- Indigo Flow. is with you. Much appreciated. <laughs> but I'm going to go ahead and pull you down, man. But thanks a lot, man. All right. Hey. Um, for the rest of you, I hope you guys have a good night. Um, I'll be seeing you soon. If you are a member and you have some ideas on something you want me to cover, um, please make sure you go ahead and email me. They've been putting the information in the chat all night uh, on how you can reach me. You can go to tsonjohnson.com and email me from there. Make sure you check out the Institute for Black Male Studies website uh, and continue to support the channel. I wish you guys a good night. Keep pressing on, brothers. I am here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man-children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, unintelligent henchmen, valueless assassins, pro bono mercenaries, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, emotional tampons, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic and selfish and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace. Thank you.